The podcast that you're about to hear contains acts of sex and violence. The hosts do not claim to be experts on the subjects that they present. Listener discretion is advised. All right, boys and girls, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of Brutal Nation. I'm your host, Scott Alexander, right across from me is Owan, the only Tammy, the underdog Underwood. Say hi, Tam. Hi, everybody. All right, so we're going to do part one of this. I'm actually really super interested in this one because... You have been to this murder house I yourself have. in person. Yeah, I actually talk about that. Yeah. So, yeah. Shoot it. Okay. Let's do it. Let's do so, it. Actually, I, I want to give a little bit of brief history real quick. Um, I, everybody knows if they're a regular listener to this show that I am originally from the Midwest. I was born in a small town called Hayward, Iowa in 1975. And I just have to throw this in there because I have to throw it in there every time because I can make fun of myself. Did you know Iowa stands for idiots out walking around? Yep, I've That's that one. That's why I had to leave. No. And then I go, but I digress. <laughs> but I digress. <laughs> I digress. So to give you an idea about how small Haywarden really is, let me give you the numbers. In the 1970 U.S. sentence, the recorded population... Census? Census. That's what I meant. You said sentence. I know I did. I'm. Thank you for pointing that out to me. You're welcome. <laughs> The 1970 U.S. Census recorded the population was roughly 2,789 people. In 1980, it was 2,722. And just in 2020, which is the last one, it was 2,700. Back in 1910, when this crime took place, it was 2,107. Okay? A lot of big growth there. I know, right? Woohoo! So... The reason I brought this up in case the case I'm going to talk about today, the Velisca Axe murders, is the greatest unsolved murder case in Iowa history. Some have said this ranks in the top three unsolved cases in the U.S. with the Zodiac Killer, the Borden murders, and Velisca Axe murders. Now, there are some who rank it in the top five unsolved cases in the world with Jack the Ripper, Zodiac Killer, Monster Florence, the Atlanta Child Murders, and Velisca, with the last two could be switched, you know, depending on what list you're looking at. Uh huh. So top five. The crime took place on June. I don't know why I have 19th. It was actually June 9th. Excuse me. Uh, no, excuse me. 10th. My bad. Um, and on June 10th, 1912, in a small town of Villisca, Iowa. I was curious about just how small it was in relation to Haywarden. Here was what I found out. In 1980, their census, 1434. In 2020, 1132. People are moving the hell out of there, man. In 1910, when this crime took place, population 2039. And in 2020, 21, I mean, 1920, it was 2111. Okay, the extra 72 residents, I theorized, were people probably investigating investigation teams trying to solve this mystery. (laughs) But, you know, um, and now there's a reason there's a legitimate reason why I chose to present this this specific case right now. You and I both talk about it. We're in the early stages of developing our new show that we hope to debut before the end of the year called Into the Abyss. That's the one where we be, will be talking about legends, myths, conspiracy theories, supernatural phenomenon, and paranormal activity. Now, this case will be one of the first topics presented on that show. Not only is it the subject of one of the greatest unsolved mysteries, it is also considered one of the most haunted locations in the United States. And I had the opportunity to go there in 2019. 
I was in Iowa for my grandma's memorial service, which is, I would like to call my family's annual dysfunction. Um, and I won't get into my experience there today, but you won't want to miss it when we do launch it because it was phenomenal. Today, I'm going to talk, be focusing on the case itself. I'm going to go through the history of the town, the crime itself, and the suspects in the case, and the folklore that has surrounded the events. This case actually ties into the case I'm going to be presenting after this, but I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, I think this is actually, it might be a two-parter, but it might be a three-parter. You know what I'm saying? It's at least really? two parts, but it might be three parts because there's a lot of information for being an unsolved case. Go, cool, go. Cool. Yeah. So, the history of Villisca, it is located in Montgomery County, and today the town is barely a speck on the map. Even then, I surmise that it's only there because of it's the home of one of the biggest tourist attractions in the state. Since I'm pretty sure most people don't have a clue where it is, it's about 66 miles south and east of Council Bluffs uh, along uh, I-29, US-34, and US-71. But if you don't know where Council Bluffs is, some people don't, it's about 69 miles south and east of Omaha. Um, as I said earlier, I visited the town in 2019. I don't remember if there was even a stoplight in town. However, I do remember having two very distinct thoughts. One is, this is a ghost town. And number two, I hope I don't break down because I have no cell service. Literally a ghost town. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and I remember on the way there, my son goes, didn't we drive by this already? I said, no, all of Iowa looks the same. <laughs> so... From what I found out during my research, Villisca wasn't always such a desolate place. In fact, it once boasted a flourishing economy. It was founded in 1858 by D.N. Smith of the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad, and he named it Villisca. I wanted to know the origin of that name, and I quickly found that there's even some controversy there as well. I once heard someone say, you can throw a rock anywhere in the United States and chances are it'll land in an area of significance to the Native American culture. This is especially true in the Midwest. Now, one of the most predominant Native American tribes in southwest Iowa is the Sac and Fox Nation. That's opposed to the northwest Iowa, which is the Sioux Nation. And then they have the Cherokee, too. Now, this peaceful tribe originally inhabited vast stretches of land in the Lake Huron and Lake Michigan area until the 1870s. That's when they were forced by Euro-American settlers to relocate. Throughout history, the Sac and Fox Nation have occupied lands in Iowa, Missouri, Oklahoma, and Wisconsin. Therefore, it didn't come as a big surprise that Smith chose a word with the Sac and Fox Nation origins. Origins, excuse me. At the time, he was going for the word Waliska which is spelled W-A-L-I-S-K-A, and that's important because he was under the impression it translated to, quote, pretty place or pleasant view, a choice that seemed prophetic at the time and even more so as the town grew over the years. Now, by 1912, many businesses, including restaurants, hotels, theaters, stores, and manufacturers thrived up and down the streets. In fact, the depot in town was always bringing in a great number of tourists and and a few settlers to the area, especially since it stopped there. It, they had trains pulling in and out of the station at least a dozen times a day. Okay? For a small town, that's a lot. Um, it is, yeah. In the beginning of 1912, the citizens of Villisca had a lot to celebrate. After all, they were the first town in the entire state of Iowa to build an armory completely funded by the public. And the uh, National Guard company housed at the Villisca Army has been in, seen many battles over the years that started with the 1916 Mexican Expedition, which is also the Mexican-American War. 
Now, after that, they were both both World Wars, the Korean War and the Vietnam War. Reports indicate that Montgomery County saw more men lost in World War II per capita than any other country county across the country. That's probably safe to say that quite a few of those lost those lost called Villisca their home. Now, while the very close-knit communities celebrated the opening of their new armory, little did they know within a few short months they would be mourning their greatest loss. A loss so immense no one remember no one would remember Velisca's accomplishments. I can't even talk. Accomplishments. All they would see is the blood that stained the small town's history forever. Now, in the span of a few hours, on one night in June 1912, an entire family of six and their two young overnight guests were brutally murdered. They were all discovered dead in their beds early on the morning of June 10th. However, it wasn't until years later that Velisca residents, who thought their town name meant pretty place, discovered the truth. Not the truth about who committed the murders. No, they found out the truth about what what the word Velisca is actually closer to the sack and fox word Waliska, which is W-A-L-L-I-S-C-A, which translates to evil spirit or Satan. It's all about Satan, isn't it? Well, I mean, I'm just saying. In Iowa, <laughs> yes, yes it is. <laughs> That's why Come I will me, not go children. into a cornfield, damn it. <laughs> the cornfield's calling you, Tammy. You know what's really funny is my son and I passed by a car, like, with its hazards on next to a cornfield on the way home the other day. And I go, um, I wonder if they got out and got lost in the cornfield. Oh, well, I'm not going after them. <laughs> Chase them. Come on. No, I will not. Can happen. I won't go into a cornfield ever again. Uh, it's getting ready to take you to a corn I've seen children year. of the corn, damn it. <laughs> and you and I both know you can walk into a cornfield straight down an aisle, turn around, walk the same way, and you still get lost. So this year, June 10th, 2022, marked the 110th anniversary of the murders. To this day, the case remains unsolved. Some of the locals say that this tragic event doesn't just haunt Velisca's past, it also continues to haunt the small town's future. When I visited Velisca in 2019, very few businesses that lined the streets were still in operation. I found out later that in addition to the ones that had been closed down and boarded up, many more had already been demolished. In fact, there is only one historic building left standing in Velisca. The structure is protected from demolition since it was placed on the National Registry of Historic Buildings. That is a small white house that has a small barn and outhouse in the back located at 508 East 2nd Street. It's also the house where this tragedy took place. Full of small people with their small pets and their small farming animals on their small farm. You're a dork. So With their small feet. You're a dork. And their small hands. I'm going to hit you. And their small horse drunk There we go. So in 2005, Darwin and Martha Lynn purchased the house. Since then, they restored it to resemble what it would have looked like before that horrific night in June of 1912. It is now a tourist attraction that welcomes visitors from all over the world during the day. For a fee, avid and amateur ghost hunters can spend the night if they dare. I won't talk about the paranormal claims now. I'll save them for our news show. However, I will say this. The town of Villisca and the Lynns have never spent one dime on advertising the availability of their day or night tours. Yet they still have a steady flow of visitors throughout the year as word of the paranormal activity has spread far and wide. Isn't that amazing? Um, Now that you know a little bit about the history of Villisca... As a town, let's talk about the crime that rocked the small community to its core and stunned the nation as a whole. Josiah B. Moore, Joe or J.B. to his family and close friends, 
was born on December 29, 1868 in Hanover, Illinois. Sarah Montgomery was born on April 17, 1873 in Henderson, Illinois. However, the two wouldn't meet, fall in love, and get married until the late 19, I mean 1890s. By then, Josiah was a prominent businessman in Villisca as Okay, actually, he didn't own and operate the Moore Implement Company until a little later, but he did. He was a top salesman for another farming implement company. Um, in fact, he was considered to be a worthy competitor with other farming implement businesses. After Josiah and Sarah fell in love, they were married on December 6, 1899, in a small intimate ceremony at Sarah's parents' house. Josiah was a couple weeks shy of his 31st birthday, and Sarah was 26 years old, which for that time wasn't very common because typically couples tended to get married when they were young. Most actually married by the time they were 18 years old, and a woman in her mid-20s was still, who still single was on the verge of being called an old maid. Now, it didn't take long for the couple to start building the family. In fact, Josiah and Sarah welcomed their first child just under nine months after their wedding, and they would go on to have four in total. Herman Montgomery Moore was born on September 2nd, 1900. Mary Catherine, January 27th, 1902. Arthur Boyd, March 22nd, 1905. And Paul Vernon on January 13th, 1907. That's because they didn't have TV or video games. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, you'll find out something else here in a minute. So, a typical Sunday in Villisca, okay? Josiah and Sarah were adored by everyone in the close-knit community of Villisca, and they were very active members of the local Presbyterian Church. In fact, every report I found described the couple as friendly, and they were always willing to step up and help their neighbors whenever it was needed. I also discovered that jo Josiah could trace his family history back almost to the founders of the town. That's how long his, the Moore family had been there. Now, June 9, 1912, was a typical Sunday in Villisca, Iowa. The entire Moore family attended church in the morning like they did every Sunday before that. Just like the weeks before, they met up with their friends, 51-year-old Joseph Stillinger, a farmer from the outskirts of town, and his 45-year-old very pregnant wife, Sarah. Although Once Sarah... Again, no TV, no video Oh, games. wait. Although Sarah was pregnant at the time, she and Joseph already had six damn children. Edith Marguerite, 19, David Lester, 16, Blanche Marie, named after her mother, or no, wrong one, that's a different one, Blanche Marie, age 14, Lena Gertrude, age 11, Ina May, age 8, and Ralph Guy, or Gee, age 6. It's probably Gee, because they're, that's more Dutch and German heritage out there. Um, side note, Sarah Stillinger gave birth to her youngest son on August 23rd, 1912, a little over two months after the tragedy that Rock Villisca took place. Sadly, it was only two days after that when he died from illness as well. I read reports that he was, I read some reports that said he was stillborn, but most of the reports said that he was born very premature and succumbed to illnesses. They hadn't even named him before they had to bury him next to his two older sisters. Oh, fucking brutal, man. I know, right? 
So later that evening, the annual Children's Day program, which marked the end of the Sunday school year, was being held at the church, which was being coordinated by Sarah Moore, which both families planned to attend. Since school was already finished for the summer, 10-year-old Catherine invited her friends, 11-year-old Lena and 8-year-old Ina, to spend the night. Lena and Ina accepted, and both sets of parents gave their permission. After church services let out, Lena and Ina went back to the Moore house to play before they returned to church for the evening's program. The program went, the Children's Day program was a huge success, and as tradition holds, there was a social gathering afterward that lasted until approximately 9.30 p.m. Now, they say that Villisca was the town of churches because they had a Methodist church, a Presbyterian church, a Scientology church, a Catholic church, all, you know, Christian science, like within the recent history, all in that little tiny town. See, that's the problem right there. Well... Well, no, here's why. Okay. They didn't have a Satanist church. Or a Greek Orthodox. <laughs> Hold on. Let me make a call. Hello, Satan? <laughs> yeah, this is Satan. Um, yeah, we're talking about the Velisca house right now being the town of churches. Let me tell you about these assholes. They didn't have a church for me. Exactly. Exactly. That has to be my buddy Squatch. Is that you? It is. Yeah, they didn't even have a church for me. And the damn town is named as evil spirit or Satan. Oh, that's, it's disrespectful. disrespectful. It really it, it, uh it hurts my feelings. <laughs> I don't like it at all. I think that these people are real pricks. Yeah, th- thanks. We-, we appreciate your your input there, Satan. No problem. I got to go. Bye-bye. Souls to burn and all. <laughs> You're so dumb. Well, I'll tell you what. The town I went to high school in, I mean, it was a lot bigger because it was a college town. But we literally had what we called Holy Corner because they had a... A, Southern, a white Southern Baptist church on one corner, across the street was a Methodist, and Kitty Corner was a Lutheran. God damn. And then the Catholic church was literally across the street from the junior high school. Yeah, you wonder why, don't you? <laughs> you wonder why. <laughs> See? Proves my point. Just saying. I'm just saying. Some molestation going on. <laughs> so anyways... Um, as friends, family, and neighbors went their separate ways on that cool, cloudy, somewhat damp June night, nobody had any idea they were saying goodbye to eight beloved members of their community forever. Like most people living in a small town in 1912, the Moore family didn't own a vehicle. Since the church was only three blocks from their house, they chose to walk. So after the church services were over, they gathered their four children and the two guests and headed back home for the night. Once they arrived at the Moore house around 9.45, 10 p.m., the children sat down for some milk and cookies. After that, they all said goodnight and went to bed. Little did they know that would be what would transpire before the sun rose a few short hours later. Now, at approximately 7.30 a.m. on June 10th, 1912, one of Moore's elderly neighbors, Mary, realized that something just didn't seem right. Um... At the house. Normally, the house was bustling with activity at sunup. However, on that particular morning, it seemed oddly still like nobody was home. Um, Mary remembered... Actually, I found out that this actually happened a little earlier. Uh, Mary remembered seeing the Moore family leave for the Children's Day program at the Presbyterian Church the night before. However, she turned in early, so she didn't see them return home. Even then, they hadn't mentioned to her that they would be gone for any reason. So... She was so concerned with the fact that she hadn't seen them yet, she decided to go over and check. She knocked on their door. No one answered. In fact, she didn't hear any sounds coming from inside. She tried to open the door and was shocked to find it locked. No one in town really locked their doors at that time. Mary was now very worried about her friends, so she went back to her house and called Ross Moore to tell him what she noticed. Ross and 
Ross was Joe's brother, Josiah's brother and the local druggist. After receiving the call, he went over to the house, arriving at approximately 8 a.m. He walked up the steps of the porch and banged on the door as he shouted for his brother and sister-in-law. When no one responded, not even the children, he tried looking in the windows to see if he could see anything. He was just surprised to discover that the window, his view inside, was blocked. He went around to every downstairs window only to find that the curtains were either closed or the windows were covered by something. That's when he became just as concerned as Mary. He took out the spare key that he always carried with him. Um, he was inside and went inside the house. He was inside for less than 60 seconds before he came back, came across, before he came, I don't know what I was going to say. Came across oh, two individuals. okay, thank you. Came across two individuals in the back bedroom covered with a bloody sheet. He didn't continue through the rest of the house. He quickly exited, placed a phone call to Ed Seeley, an employee of the hardwood store Joe owned, and he told Ed to find Marshall Henry Horton and tell him to come over to the Moore house because something terrible had happened. Henry Horton? Here's a who. Yeah, his name is actually John Henry Hank Horton. That's too many goddamn so, names. I know. Marshall Henry Hank Horton arrived at the scene at approximately 8.30 a.m. and proceeded to go through the house. When he was finished, he came out and told... Ross that there was something somebody murdered in every bed he also located what he assumed was the murder weapon the weapon in question was an axe found just lying against the wall of the downstairs bedroom where the bodies of the Stillinger girls were discovered tests on the weapon later indicate that the suspect had attempted to clean it a little bit before they left it behind Hank also noticed that before the killer or killers had left a house they left behind two very bizarre shall we say touches the first odd thing Hank found was a slab of bacon, approximately four pounds, wrapped in a cloth on the floor by the axe next to the wall. Okay, already I don't like the killers. It's not for the killing. You left bacon behind. I know, dude. Dicks. Yeah, and there was another similar slab in the freezer. So the second thing Hank noticed about the place were the reflective items. Each and every mirror throughout the house and the glass on the front doors, as well as all the windows, had been covered with some sort of clothing or material. The killer had eliminated all reflections in throughout the entire residence. Although their reasoning for doing so is still unknown, there have been several theories, which I will discuss a little later. Do you think you know why? They're vampires. No, dork shit. <laughs> now, Hank Horton, Villisca City Marshal, arrived on the scene very quickly. Right behind him were officers from Villisca Police Department and the Montgomery County Sheriff's Office. Now, however, even before they arrived, news of the murder spread through the town faster than a forest fire out of control. After all, it's a small town, and we know how news in small towns spreads quickly. Hey, Martha! <laughs> uh, yep, pretty much. Yeah. As soon as the local, actually back then, it's all they had to do was pick up the phone and has to be placed on a call somewhere because they had the live operators. Mm -hmm. So no matter who they called, they just had to repeat it once. So, as soon as the local citizens heard what happened, they flocked to the house to see what was going on. It wasn't long before the authorities lost complete control of the situation. And back in 1912, they didn't know, especially in small towns, about preserving a crime scene. So, reports indicate that approximately 100 people from the area had not only converged on the house, they'd all trampled through the crime scene. Jesus. The whole crime scene was in chaos until around noon, approximately three and a half hours after the bodies were discovered. That's when they, the newly established Villisca National Guard arrived and taped off the residence. Now, in addition to the things Hank Horton discovered that I mentioned above... 
There were some other interesting pieces of evidence and theories from the night of the murders. I can agree with some of the theories. However, there is at least one that I don't think is plausible and I'll explain here in a minute. Now, the first thing that seemed odd was the evidence collected from the attic of the Moore house. There was a small attic upstairs located just off the room where the Moore children slept. When the area was searched, the authorities found two cigarette butts lying on the floor. Since nobody in the Moore household was known to smoke, they surmised that the killer had been hiding in that area waiting for everyone in the house to fall asleep. The theory was that while he waited, he enjoyed a couple cigarettes. However, I'm not sure that theory holds up. I've been inside the Moore house. When I say that the rooms were small, that's not an exaggeration. Scott, even though it's a two-story house, it's smaller than your apartment square footage. Holy shit. Yeah, I'm just saying. First of all, the staircase leading up the stairs is very steep and narrow. In fact, the steps were shallow, you know, going front to back. So when I went up and down, I had to turn sideways. Otherwise, I may have fallen as barely half of my foot fit on the stair when I ascended and descended. You do have big feet. Okay, but you know what? Even then, it was small. And then, there wasn't a hallway upstairs. As soon as you reach the top of the stairs, there's. I noticed that it opened into what people were calling a master bedroom. There was a queen-size bed with the head resting against the wall on the east side, which is a, away from the stairwell. And there's, it was flush against the northeast corner of the wall. So it's like one side of the bed was right up against the wall in the corner. Okay. Now, on the south side of the bed, there's a small area where someone can stand between the bed and the vanity dresser against the south wall. At the foot of the bed is a narrow walkway where the people on the tour had to walk single file to get to the south bedroom where the more children were. Okay. The doorway leading to the children's room was so narrow, the average size adult had to turn sideways. I'm five, eight and a half, and I had to duck my head a little. My son, who's almost six, eight, had to duck his head a lot. Along the west wall in the children's room, right about center of the wall, there's a small doorway that led to the attic. Now, the, to enter the door of the attic, I had to crouch down and squeeze through the door sideways. My uncle, who had gone with us with his wife to tour the house is roughly the same size as my son but not as stocky he had a heck of a time trying to get through the door my son started to come through then goes nah i don't think so therefore due to the layout of the second floor and the close proximity of the attic in relation to the other rooms the theory that the killer hid in a small room smoking cigarettes waiting for the opportunity to strike seems far-fetched I do not believe that the smell of the cigarette smoke would have gone undetected by those who were in the house, especially the ones upstairs. Right? I agree, yeah. I mean, you and I both have smoked, well, you still smoke cigarettes. We all know that it's a distinct odor. You know? So, ow, dang. Just like Sasquatches. You know what, bitch? I'm going to come spray you here in a minute. (laughs) (laughs) The top of the stairs, at the foot of Josiah and Sarah's bed on the floor... The authorities found an oil lamp. The location where the lamp was found blocked the path of anyone trying to enter into the master bedroom area. And as I mentioned, a person had to walk through the parents' room to get to the children's room. It was obviously out of place. I also found out that the chimney part of this oil lamp was removed and like shoved underneath the dresser, which it was another reflective surface, right? So it was like, taken care of therefore the authorities assumed it had been left there by the killer they theorized that 
he lit the lamp and used it to find his way through the house in the dark as he went from room to room murdering the Moore family and their guests. The question I'm sure you're asking, because I asked it myself, if he killed the Stillinger girls last, why was the lamp at the top of the stairs? There's a simple answer to that. He went around the house and murdered all eight victims. And once everyone was dead, he went through the house again, covering their heads and faces. And some say he even continued to brutalize the parents and the other children upstairs. He hit Josiah a total of 30 times in the head with the blunt end of an axe. What a dick. Yeah. Could be a she, though. Um, Yeah. No. Could be. Could be. Women are fucking crazy. Yeah, you're raising your hand. Woo, woo. Whatever. I'll kill a bitch. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you have before. I have not. <laughs> I will kill you. In other words, after he murdered the Stillinger sisters, he returned to the second floor to re- finish his ritual. Now, the final oddity the authorities noticed at the crime scene shed some light on some information I will be discussing in part two. In order to lock the doors of the house, either from the outside or the inside, the locks were set up that a key had to be used. You know, like they used to, you had to lock from the inside, like the skeleton key. Right, right. Okay. So according to the testimony I'll get into next time, when Ross Moore unlocked the front door from the outside, the key used to lock it from the inside was not in the lock where it would have been had Josiah been the one to lock the doors himself. After searching the house, the authorities could not locate the key that would have locked the door. Therefore, the investigators in the case developed a theory as to why the key was nowhere to be found. It's assumed that as the killer exited the residence, he grabbed the key so he could lock the door behind him. They also surmised that he left the premises. He took the key with them, with him. Well, it's kind of obvious. Yeah. A little bit on the on the nose. Right a little there, bit. You know what I mean? Well, and then... Um, there was also some speculation. I don't know if it's true because I couldn't find it in the police reports and it was never mentioned in the Velisca website, which is the official site, that there they found some a section in the barn where hay had been matted down, like somebody had been sleeping there. And next to where the head would have been, there was a whole bore out in the wall where he could see like into one of the bedrooms, which as if he were stalking somebody. Right? But like I said, that information isn't anywhere in the official Velisca site. So I kind of discredited it as people just embellishing. So by early evening hours, a hush had fallen over, oh, fell over the crowd as they began to realize the person or people who killed everyone in the Moore house had somehow managed to get away. They were all hoping that the bloodhounds arriving from Beatrice, Nebraska would be more successful. There's also another case I want to cover on there too. Considering they all smelled the threat of rain in the horizon, they couldn't wait for the hounds to arrive before the scent was washed away in the storm. The train carrying the two bloodhounds and their handler arrived at the station at approximately 9 p.m. Bert McCall picked them up in his car to make sure they arrived at the crime scene eight blocks away as quickly as possible. Despite the fact the axe had been handled by several people since it was discovered, they used it and the cloth the suspect had cleaned it with to give the hounds their target scent. As soon as the dogs took off, a crowd followed right behind. Well, rather than crowd, I should say mob, considering there were nearly 2,000 people trailing after the bloodhounds on horseback, the foot, stupid thing and though, the behind the vehicles. The bloodhounds are going to go to the same people who handled the axe already. Mm-hmm. I can already see this coming. Uh, well, there's actually a little twist here. Today, we wouldn't 
expect bloodhounds to successfully track a scene as contaminated as that one was. However, the dogs follow the scent undeterred until they hit the Nodaway River around West Fork. When the hounds stalled there, their handler started the process again. The second time, they ended in the exact same spot. Only now, it was after midnight. The handler tried one more time. He started from the Moore house, introduced the scent, and the scent hounds and the hounds were off. They again ended in the same location. Since yeah, since the dogs led to a location multiple times and a suspect was not found, it was assumed that they had failed at their task. Therefore, they were sent back to Nebraska. It wasn't until later when it was discovered that there might actually be an actual reason they led the mob to the river all three times. And I'll talk about that probably in the next episode. Now, the bodies finally removed from the crime scene. It probably, and probably what I would consider to be the most grotesque act of misconduct in this entire investigation would be the way the bodies were handled. The entire time the town was assembling posses, following bloodhounds around, the bodies of the victims remained in the house. Nothing was done to protect them from the hot Midwest air in June or the natural elements that are common in that area during that time of year. I thought you were going to go into a rap song. Dead (laughs) bodies in the house! Dead bodies in the house. Chicka, chicka, chicka. You're too late. Although we would consider that an, that act an obvious violation in the protocol for processing a crime scene, I honestly don't believe the small town of Villisca had any sort of protocol. According to documents, the county coroner at the time, Dr. Lindquist, absolutely refused to sign a release for the bodies until he received authorization from the county attorney, Ratcliffe. And since Ratcliffe was clear over in Cedar Rapids, attending to another matter when he was told about the incident, they had to wait until he arrived back in town. As luck would have it, he arrived around the same time the Bloodhounds did. When Ratcliffe arrived on the scene and officially released the bodies, the coroner was nowhere to be found. He was in the mob following the hounds and their scent. Since the coroner had not released the remains to the undertaker pending the authorization from the county attorney, they remained on site until well after 11 p.m., nearly 24 hours from their earliest time of death. That's Jack, Yeah, man. without being preserved in the elements in Iowa in June, I can't even begin to tell you Fucking what that would alone. do to evidence today, let alone in 1912. No kidding. God damn. Yeah. Because they didn't have the benefit of an air conditioner, even. Or air, or fucking insulation. Yeah. Or, yeah. Ah, damn. I know, right? So, I can't even... Okay, I can't even begin to tell you what the community of Villisca was feeling during that time, either. I know from growing up in a small town in Iowa, what it would have felt like in the early 90s if this type of crime would have occurred. I can just imagine how devastated and frightened everyone in town must have felt. As darkness settled over the town on Monday evening, so did the fear that whoever attacked the Moore family wasn't finished and was waiting to strike again. Needless to say, families had assigned guard duty. People stood guard throughout the night with loaded weapons in the event a madman tried to enter the premises. People went out and purchased locks for their doors for the first time ever. Hardware stores ran low on their supply of nails because people were nailing their windows shut. Those who owned a dog made sure they were ready for any unwanted intruder. Those who didn't own a dog quickly got one. After all, a guard dog was, quote, prized above all else during that time. And they should be. I I know. I want to give a shout out to everybody who owns a dog. Take care of your puppy, man. Like, for real. 
for real, for real. I tell people all the time, my dog, my ghosty poo, will let will welcome you into the house and help you carry out every valuable we own. But lay a hand on me or anybody else in my family, he'll murder you. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was that was evident when he was over here and for tried the first to kill time. your dog. <laughs> yeah, because my dog's an asshole, and I, yeah. I love her because she's great with people and she's really cute. But you know, she got up in Ghost's face, and Ghost just kind of recoiled, like, "Just go away, dude. Yeah, I don't want nothing to do with you." Until, yeah, he thought that he hurt you, or she. That, yeah, that she he hurt thought you. she hurt me because I said "ow" when they were going at it. Yeah, yeah, and then it was on like Donkey. Well, Kong. and then even ever after she would go outside and come back in, he'd be like standing up going. Yeah. Like, come near my mom. I'll kill you. It's like, you can bark at me. You can growl at me. You yeah. can get up in my face. I don't care. You just stay away from, from, yeah. from my handler. Yeah, you stay away from my mommy. Yeah, you know, it's just, and Ghost is a sweetheart. I miss him. I know. Miss my buddy. So then there was the rumor mill. You and I grew up in small towns. Nothing travels faster than then the small the town gossip mill. chain. The longer... Time went on, went by without an arrest or suspect in custody, the more poisonous in nature the rumors were. It only took minutes for those rumors to spread and the community to become even more unsure of their safety. Now, on Tuesday morning, an assistant warden from Leavenworth Penitentiary in Kansas, who was also a fingerprint expert named M.W. McLaughrey, I can't remember, arrived in Villisca to investigate the scene at the Moore House himself. However, when he stepped off the train, the small town residents weren't very confident in his abilities. After all, he was so intoxicated, he could barely stand up, let alone walk. That's the best person to have, man. Dude, right? So he went to the hotel, slept it off, and once he was sober, he set about thoroughly processing the crime scene. Although he wasn't able to find any viable fingerprints, obviously, the crime scene had been trampled. Yeah, there's like 10,000 fucking prints on there, dude. He made some interesting observations. The first thing he noticed was the attacks were carried out with extreme savagery. The ceilings and all of the bedrooms had deep gouges carved out of them, which he assumed happened when the killer swung the axe up between each blow, which means he had to come up with force. Right, right, right. Then, after analyzing the blood spatter, not splatter, like you always say, and the gouges in the ceiling, which included taking measurements, he was able to tell Horton and the other investigators some important details regarding the killer. It was his belief that whoever killed their eight victims was left-handed. He also said that it was his belief that when the killer murdered the children in the upstairs bedroom, it looked as if he might have swung the axe over his head with one hand. Considering how heavy an axe can be, it would suggest the killer was in a state of hysteria, maybe even maniacal. Um, The investigators on the case received at least 100 leads. That doesn't even include the hundreds of thousands of rumors circulating around the small town. Everybody in and around Villisca had their own thoughts on who might have committed the murders. In fact, I read in one one. Of the reports I found that not only did everyone point a finger at someone else, everyone at at one point had the finger pointed at them. I know who did it. I, I solved it. Do you? Who did it? You. Thank you. You did it. I wasn't alive in 1912. Whatever. Despite what my son says. Look, look. You are just making excuses for the horrible, horrific things that you did. You're terrible. I you're, would never you're, hurt you're a bad child. Person. You know that. Not wanting to rule anything out. Without investigating at first, the authorities began chasing down every lead. When they were done, they realized they had spent a week running down one blind alley after another with nothing to show for their efforts. Now, 
early in the beginning stages of this case, detectives from out of town came to help with the investigation. One article referred to them as, quote, professional investigators, which I discovered meant they were basically men from private investigation firms, which were the typical ones to investigate crimes like that back then. Right. There's a Pinkertons and shit like that. Right. So one was Lloyd. Oh, my God. There are sometimes when I hesitate to say Long Necker. His name was Lloyd Longnecker out of Omaha, Nebraska. He is just one letter away from being a porn star. <laughs> I know, right? Just saying. Just saying. <laughs> Maybe. I'm um, changing my name to that, actually. I like that. Oh, my God. Uh, my name is Scott Longpecker. I mean, Longnecker. <laughs> You're so stupid. And another was Tom O'Leary, who had come all the way from Kansas City. Now, after they went through the crime scene, they developed their own theories about Velisca, the Velisca murder. They figured the death of the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters were just the latest in a series of killings that started in the fall the year before. Beginning in September 17, 1911, in Colorado Springs, entire families were being annihilated approximately every two weeks across the Midwest. Two weeks after the Colorado Springs murder, a similar murder occurred in Monmouth, Illinois. After that... On October 15th, another family was bludgeoned to death, this time in Ellsworth, Kansas. The last murder that took place before the Velisca incident occurred on June 5th, 1912 in Paola, Kansas. When I dug further into this theory, I discovered an interesting twist. The murders may have actually began back in 1898 and continued through 1912. However, I won't be touching on the details surrounding that theory yet because I'm um, after we wrap up talking about the Bliss case, I'm presenting another case that ties into this one. Now, um, yes, the two private investigators theorized that Velisca murders might be connected to a series of murders that had already taken place across the Midwest. In fact, their theory was the main focus during the early stages of the investigation. However, it wasn't long before their theory was all but forgotten. I know that seems, seems strange to us over 100 years later, but back then, times were different. They didn't have the benefit of modern technology to help them link cases that are similar in nature. In 1912, they felt that if they followed that theory, they would basically be chasing their tails. If they would have pursued that line of investigation and accepted the theory that the Velisca murders were just one of many com committed by a single serial killer, or actually they called them sequential killers, um, then that meant one thing. The murderer was roaming around the country with such randomness that they would never be able to predict where he would strike next. Not only that, they couldn't find even the slightest element that they felt linked the families that were murdered. If they would have had the benefit of modern technology, I think their investigation would have gone a different way. Yet, with the information they had available to them at the time, if they continued with the serial killer theory, this is what they were looking at. The murderer was traveling from one town to another with no pattern, almost as if he flipped a coin to plot his next destination only to arrive there to annihilate another family at random. Therefore, there was no trail or lead for them to follow, nothing for them to anticipate. They would be just sitting around with their thumbs up their arse, like that one, <laughs> waiting for him to murder again only hoping that he somehow left a clue that would point to his identity. The sheer inactivity of waiting for another family to be murdered was extremely frustrating to the police, not to mention how it affected the community that wanted the killer apprehended, so they didn't have to continue living in fear of when and where he would strike again. Investigators back then were used to active investigations, so running with a theory that they were looking at 
looking for a wandering lunatic made them feel helpless. Since they didn't have any conclusive proof of any similarities in the murders available to them, they kept that theory on the back burner. Yes, they acknowledged the fact that there was a possibility it was committed by a serial killer. However, they chose to move forward with the theory that Velisca murder was a one-off standalone crime committed by a madman. A madman, I say! So, I'm going to end there. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, because that's just like getting into right before we introduce the suspects. All right. So, that's part one of a several-part series, I guess. Remember, you can send us an email at BrutalNation at TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check out the website at www.TwistedBlueLLC.com. Check us out on Medium, on Medium, and wherever you get your blogs. Just type in at BrutalNation. Check out our YouTube page. We could do, dude, we need more followers. Just go and like and subscribe and all that good stuff. So, and don't know. leave mean comments about how we're fucking annoying. I love that one. You kidding me? I got the biggest kick out of that. I know because you are fucking annoying, but I'm not. No, I'm fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> the show's copyright 2022 by Twisted Blue LLC. All rights are reserved. We will see you guys tomorrow. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.